Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Package Tourist, hosted by yours truly, The Package Tourist, and the magical mystery tour called Life, Matthew DiBiase. Tonight's guest is author Tim Wendell. Tim was born and raised in Lockport, New York. He worked for the Buffalo Courier Express in USA Today. Later on, he, has, he wrote articles for the New York Times, Washington Post, Gentleman's Quarterly, and Esquire magazines. Tim has published numerous critically acclaimed and award-winning works, some dealing with sports like the 1980 U.S. men's hockey team, which won the gold medal at Lake Placid, the 1968 Major League Baseball season, and NBA basketball. Tim has also written several novels, three of which deal with Cuba. Today, Tim works as a writer-in-residence at Johns Hopkins University in Maryland, teaching students the secrets you know, of how to have a great writer like he is. Tim, welcome to the show. I like this to be with you, Matthew. How are you? It's pretty good. And it's an honor and privilege to have you on. Tim, please tell our audience about your most recent works, Cancer Crossings and Escape from Castro's Cuba. I'd be happy to. Um, very different work. Cancer Crossings is uh, nonfiction. It's pretty much the story. It's part memoir, family memoir. I had a brother with leukemia, but uh, perhaps more importantly, it's the story of about a half a dozen doctors who turned the tide pretty much against childhood cancer and leukemia, taking it from a 10% survival rate to 90% survival rate today, which they did in the mid-60s into the early 70s. Well, unfortunately, one of them just uh, died, passed on just a couple weeks ago, a good friend, Dr. Mm -hmm. Donald Pinkle, who started up St. Jude mm -hmm. in Memphis. And so that, that was a book um, that kind of, well, they all kind of find me in a way. My daughter was, um, at that point, she's a doctor now, but she was in medical school at Georgetown. And she came home one night and said, uh, Dad, you had a brother with leukemia? And she started asking me all these questions. And I could not really answer any of them. And that night, I stayed up late. I started pulling down some clinical trials. And I, was, I started seeing the same names, Donald Finkel, James Holland, uh, Lucius Sinks. And I realized these were the guys that did it. And they were all in their mid-80s, early 80s, uh, mid-80s. And at that point, I remember still being up at 2 a.m. and just pushing all these other papers aside on my desk and saying, I'm starting that project uh, the next morning. And I did. Um, yeah. And the escape, escape from Castro's Cuba is, uh, again, something that, that's a novel. It's a sequel to my first novel, Castro's Curveball which came out oh, about 20-some years ago, I guess. Wow. And I've got this infatuation with Cuba. I should have done a sequel a lot earlier. But it was early 2017, and um, I've made four trips to Cuba. This was my fourth, but my wife had never been. And um, she was saying, hey, it's time you took me to Cuba. And we went down, and I hadn't been down about seven, eight years and oh, as soon as we got to the airport, um, landed in Havana, they knew I was there and we were being followed a little bit, but Havana had changed so much that I found myself thinking, hmm, it's time to revisit Cuba and especially Havana and what's going on there in terms of baseball prospects and just the people. So again, you can see, you know, I, I tend to work on a lot of things, but when things kind of reach out to me and latch onto me, I, I don't let go. What is now interesting? What is it about Cuba that that, that sunk its claws into you that really put the hook in you? Can you kind of expand on that? What is it that Cuba that fascinates you? 
it's um, Matthew. It's kind of like the land time for God. Mm. And my first trip there, uh, actually, when was that? Ninety-one. Mm. Um, I just remember being infatuated with the place. The architecture is amazing. The people have this real kind of gallows humor, which I find remarkable considering everything they've gone through. You know, pretty much since you know before the Cuban Missile Crisis, etc. And, um, you know, I remember walking around old Havana at one point on that first trip and this older Cuban lady comes up to me and says, are you American? And I'm not going to lie. I said, yeah, I am. And, um, and she was insistent on saying, we never trusted the Russians. And I thought, mm. okay, why didn't you trust the Russians? Mm. They said, because we're better dancing. And, I, and, and, and in an odd way, that sums up Cuba. And, um, I love walking around. Havana at dusk, early in the morning, twilight, because with the way the boulevards reach out with the royal palm trees down the middle, you can see what a beautiful, amazing place this was. And it still kind of is, but, uh, you know, when you think back to the 40s and 50s when everybody had to go to Havana. So yeah. it, it's kind of unusual because it, it got its hooks in me, and I had been sent down there to do an assignment for USA Today International in 91, and, and yet it was a place I never really have forgotten, and I seem to come back to quite a bit with my writing. Now, in your novels about first uh, Castro's Curveball and then Escape from Castro's Cuba, there's a character, I think his name was it, uh, last name of Brian, was it Mike Brian or something like that? Tell us about yeah, that yeah, character, yeah. Mike Brian. Tell us about him. Yeah, yeah, actually it's uh, Billy Brian, and oh, okay. I think he's... sorry. I, I'm, I, I needed kind of an everyman character, and I want, wanted somebody who was, um, it's funny because that first novel, Curveball, was one of the first, was maybe one of the first times I really wrote at length in first person. Mm. You know, I was coming from kind of a journalism background and magazines, and I hadn't written a lot of uh, first person. Now I, I write quite a bit more, certainly with essays and such. But I remember working on that early on, and I was getting actually on the metro one day, because that's the time I wrote. I was going from Vienna to Roslyn when USA Today was there on the Orange Line. That's about the only time I had to write. I, I had a high-powered job. My kids were young. And so I had about a half hour to write on the metro uh, on that commute. And one day I started to write, and it wasn't a great day, and I almost put down, you know, put away the notebook, but I kind of started feeling guilty. Uh, I kind of made this promise to myself. I was going to write at least a page a day in my spiral notebook. And I pulled it back out as we were kind of, you know, going below ground at Boston. And um, I started to scribble very quickly just to get it done. And I ended up writing in first person in a voice that I like to think is more naive mm. and desperate than my own. Mm. And that night I got home and I looked at the notebook and a lot of that novel had been done or I thought it was done. It was uh, being written in third person, but I loved that voice mm. so much. I said, that's what we're going to do. And that's the voice of Billy Bryan. And it was funny because um, I remember when we did the tour for that book, I think it was at NYU and it was like question and answer time at the end. And a woman got up and and <laughs> the right kind of loaded question she started to say and she'd obviously read the book she said i don't really much care about castro or if he could have been a baseball player i don't care much about baseball i don't care if i ever go to cuba 
And I'm thinking, wow, I don't know where this is going. But she said, that voice, Billy Bryan, I'd follow that anywhere. And um, I want to thank God I wrote it down that day because it's, it's a voice that I still love the channel. Do you, when you were doing talking about Billy Bryan or any of your novel characters, are, are there are there any autobiographical aspects to when you write your novels? Do you try to inject your own personal life story? Because I mean, some novelists do and some don't. With regards to yourself, do you do that? Yeah, at times. I think Billy Billy's from upstate New York. He's from Western New York, Lockport, which I am. <laughs> um, I think that kind of feeds into maybe the desperation and maybe always trying to do right, even though things may not go in your favor some of the time or a lot of the time. Um, obviously, in the two Cuban novels, uh, we've got this guy, Fidel Castro, floating around, and um, who's a very much a major character. And I read, I guess, three autobiographies of him, and, and I was grappling with this because it's not like the Castro people know now who is the dictator and took over the island. You know, in those, um, at least in the first novel, you know, he's, he's in his early 20s. And we do know he was deciding, you know, between kind of pursuing baseball, even though he probably wouldn't have made it, or revolution. The world would have been a lot different if he pursued baseball. <laughs> and, and so I remember reading one of... Um, I was reading those autobiographies, but at the same time, now I'd made the shift the first person, trying to do the novel in first person. And so I was rereading Great Gatsby by Fitzgerald. And I, I love the way Fitzgerald kind of fades that voice of Nick Carraway in and out. Sometimes Nick is right up in your grill, and other times he's like in the background and the, the scenes kind of play out, which I think is a marvelous technique. And I was like reading it, and toward the end, um, uh, I can't remember verbatim, but he's talking about Tom and Daisy. This is after Gatsby's been killed, et cetera. And, and Nick is saying something to the effect of, they were the type of people that just moved ahead in the world and didn't care what kind of wreckage or trouble they left in their wake. And as soon as I read those lines, I went, that's the way my Castro character is going to be. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to come down if he's evil or good. I mean, I'm not going to do a political thing here, but I want him so... Uh, ego-driven and so sure of himself that he doesn't realize the, the you know the turmoil he's leaving in his wake, and and that's very much the character he is. And considering what we're seeing now in Ukraine, you know, Russia and Ukraine, actually, it's quite contemporary what you just said. You know, the way you articulate that, I kind of find it interesting. You mentioned Gatsby, if I recall correctly, Hunter S. Thompson when he was doing his Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, he was heavily influenced by Gatsby when he was writing that stellar work, if I recall correctly. No, I believe you're right. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a great, you know, I use it with my students sometimes. And sometimes they, they really kind of, you know, go, what? You know, we did this in high school. And I'm going, no, we're yeah. going to go a lot deeper because what yeah. what Fitzgerald does there and moving that first-person voice, you know, the, the danger of a first-person voice is it can become kind of like the drunk at the bar. It can yeah. go on too long. Yeah. And so at times you've got to fade it back and other times you'll ramp it up. Yeah. Now, Tim, you wrote a novel called Red Rain about World War II. Can you tell our listeners about it? Because isn't it a subject, the subject matter based on a true story about Japanese vengeance balloons that were launched from Japan and floated to America in the wake of American bombing of Japan? Can you tell us about it? Yeah, you, 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 you nailed it, Matthew. And, it, and it's funny, again, this is a, a, a story that 
reached out to me. We were someplace, this is quite a, we were at a party in Washington, and this is years and years ago. Yeah. And it, but it wasn't that soon after um, the, the whole Clint, Bill Clinton escapade and Monica Lewinsky, the blue dress, all this stuff. Yeah. And, um, and we were talking, I was talking with a couple of friends at the party, and I said something in effect of, I always thought it would be great when all the secrets were out, but now I'm not so sure. And a guy who wasn't really part of our conversation, he was kind of off over my shoulder or something. He said, well, of course you know about the best kept secret of World War II. And I went, what? What are you talking about? You know, I'd like to think of myself as kind of a history buff, but, you know, I had no idea what he was talking about. He was from the Smithsonian, and he started telling me about these Japanese fire balloons and how, yes, they they were kind of this blowback for the carpet bombing of Tokyo and such, but how close Japan came to arming them with not just incendiary devices, but anthrax, maybe nerve gas, things like that. And they stopped. And the reason they stopped is that pretty much our country and Canada kept it enough of a secret that even though the Japanese were monitoring um, newspapers, radio transmissions, what they could, not enough of it had come out. And so they, they, they had discovered the jet stream. This is all true. It was taking three, roughly three days, two nights to get across the Pacific. You found uh, fire balloons had detonated all the way from the Aleutian Islands all the way to uh, just west of Detroit, believe it or not. Wow. There was more, more than 400 instances of these, but we kept it secret, and therefore the Japanese ended the threat. And I think it's, and I, I love the whole thing of secrets and, and such. And so that was the jumping off point for, for Red Rain. Now, you're, a te- you're not only a writer in residence at Johns Hopkins University in Maryland, you also teach as well. When you, talk to, when you teach your students, what is the biggest lesson you teach your students about writing? What is the key, the most important lesson you teach them about the craft? Um, I would say two. Matthew, number one, maybe the most important, is you have to do this with regularity. Mm. You know, if you're always waiting to be um, inspired, if you're waiting for the inspiration, I don't think you're going to get especially a long-form piece, whether it's a novel or extended magazine piece, whatever it may be, essay, you're not going to get it done. You know, there's some days you you, you just, you've got to write it even though you don't feel like it. And, and frankly, sometimes you're just totally surprised. I'm thinking myself on the Metro writing the orange line the day I didn't want to write. And here comes the voice of Billy Bryan that I built a whole novel around. If mm-hmm. I had picked up my notebook that day, that would have gone on to somebody else. And I guess the other thing I try to impress upon them is try, you know, don't let others interpret your material or in a sense um okay it or approve it you know I, I, a lot of my students think they're only going to really become a bona fide writer uh if they get a great agent and that might be true to a certain extent but what they're doing already is letting others in a sense uh delineate or decide their career mm. you know if you've got a great idea somebody else is going to love it Mm. And, and the thing is, you have to believe in your idea. But and sometimes that's the most elusive thing. When we were shopping, uh, you know, shopping Castro's curveball, that was rejected 33 times. Wow. That was almost three years of rejection. But all the time, I kept thinking, if I can just find 
the right editor or place which could get excited as much as I am about this, and they're there. It's just uh, sometimes a little bit of a needle in a haystack, and that's where it can get a little bit, um, you know, uh, discouraging. Now, when your students ask you questions, is there one question above others that they ask you the most? What is the most common question that they put to you about the craft of writing? <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not the craft as much. I'm thinking, I'm thinking probably the question I get a lot, lot is, uh, how do I get an agent? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and I try to tell them, you know, you know, it, that's all going to work out, but work on your story right now. Yeah. You know, get it really down. And one of the things I really try to urge them to do, and it sounds a little formulaic in a way, but I've been amazed how much of a crossover there is in this between New York publishing and, say, Hollywood and movies. Mm. Um, and, and they're kind of, they're roughly called the same thing, but you've got like, what you know, what's, what's your one-liner, what's your log line, you know, whatever it may be. Because I'm of the mind, if you can't, and I think this is true for nonfiction too, if you can't tell somebody uh, what this story is about in one to three lines, I think once you're getting over three lines, it's probably a bit too much. Mm. Um, you don't have it down yet. And I tend to have, once I have that line, um, I put it up on my bulletin board. I get lost a lot. I come back, you know, you know, I'll come in each morning. I write in the mornings and go, what are we writing? Oh, and like Castro's curveball, it took me a long time, several months to come up with the one line for that or the log line, but it was a love story set in old Havana about a pitcher, baseball pitcher, who might have been. Yeah. And, and that, there it is. And, and that keeps me, that allows me to kind of riff and go in different directions. But it also, just as importantly, say you get to the agent situation, you know, and they're kind of interested in you and maybe what's going on. This is now ammunition, you know, that they can take to their weekly editorial meetings. And they're going, hey, I was just talking to this guy and he's writing this thing based in Cuba. You know, it's, it's a story. You know, it's a novel. It's about, it's based in old Havana about a baseball pitcher who might have been and it's called Castro's Curveball. And immediately, boom, they got it. And so, but that, that doesn't drop out of the blue. I mean, you can agonize about that and go back and forth. And, and frankly, I think it's more writing, the, writing the, the, the piece, writing the book, whatever it may be. By the time you're into it pretty deep, you'll know what those couple lines are. When you're evaluating your students' work, is there a, like a common mistake that your, that your pupils fall into when they're doing their, writing their samples and all that? I mean, is, is, and if there is, can you explain it to our audience so they too can avoid that common error? I mean, is there like a common mistake that they usually make when they're doing their writing? Um, sometimes they are, they're, they're rushing things, mm. especially if it's long form. And, and it's, it's interesting I'm saying that because I kind of do the same thing a little bit when you get really excited about something, you want to kind of push it out. But um, I think the students I've seen and I've had some amazing students. I mean, Monica Hesse at the Washington Post, Amakatsu, who's cranking out these amazing, um, you know, uh, books, novels for Simon and Schuster and Putnam, uh, Will Potter, et cetera. What, what they did was take the time, you know, especially if something was important to them 
And, and that's maybe one of the key decisions is, okay, what do you really want to write? You don't have time to write everything under the sun. So what's the one, two things that really get you going? Mm. And the other thing that I think kept them all on pace, so to speak, or allowed them to take the time is very soon they ended up with, um, you know, they got on the same way going from a couple other students and, and they, they kind of, were their own little writing group within a larger program like mm. Johns Hopkins. And I think that was so beneficial for all of them. And I think, and I urge all my students now to do that. If, if we're in a workshop, if somebody's saying something, you're kind of going, yeah, yeah, that's dead on, that's good. Well, don't just sit there and, and think that. Reach out to that person. There's your compadre. There's, there's your brother or sister in arms as you move forward in what can be a very you know, exacting and sometimes difficult profession. Wow. Tim, whenever I interview an author on my show, I always ask the standard question. When you were growing up, who were your favorite authors that you loved to read when you were growing up? And of those favorite authors, did any of them light the spark inside of you to become a writer in your own right, or perhaps maybe influence your personal writing style? Yeah, yeah. Well, Hemingway, comes to mind right away, but for a little bit different reason. You know, I love Hemingway's style, even though mine's gotten more, I don't know, I don't want to say flowery, but more ornamentation over the years. But when I was first reading Hemingway and I was reading Nick Adams stories, my family vacation still has a family cottage up in Upper Michigan, up near Traverse City, you know, the Charlevoix area. And I'm reading these stories and going, wow. You know, I, I know these places, and look what he's doing with this. And I, I kind of thought before then, you know, granted I was like 13, 14, but I thought everything was kind of made up. You made it all up. And yet here he was using such precise description and detail, and, and I knew these places, you know, Horton's Bay, Charlevoix, et cetera, you know, because that's, that's where my grandfather had retired. Yeah. And then a little bit later, I got swept up again because I was – a little bit over in, for a long period of time, and I'm still there in a way in the nonfiction world and got my start in newspapers. I was amazed what the new journalists were doing. I'm talking Tom Wolfe, yeah. Jane Talese, Thompson, we mentioned before. Yeah. And frankly, the one I still read that knocks my socks off is Joan Didion. You know, mm. what she does just in sentence construction is uh, yeah. profound. We, so, yeah. yeah, all of them influenced me in some some way. And I would guess probably Didion. <laughs> you know, I was just reading some Didion the other day, so she's still she's still there. And we just lost her too, sadly. And you know, we lo we lost her. The writing world—that's a, a tragic loss too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Tim, please tell our listeners where can readers find your books. Um, you can find them about anywhere on the web and whatever. Um, a lot of bookstores have them. If they don't, please ask for them. They'll bring them in. Um, pretty much all of them are conventionally published, even though I'm beginning to think, hmm, it's time to myself publish or do a Kickstarter campaign on something, but um, they're out there. And if for some reason there's a title and you can't find it, um, uh, your listeners, Matthew, can always reach out to me at timwendel.com. 
uh, my website, there's a contact button there. So that's easy. It's interesting you mentioned self-publishing because, Tim, I myself am an author. I've bought three books out there, and of those three, two were self-published. I mean, you're seeing this uh, proliferation of the self-publishing industry. I mean, I myself use Kindle Digital Publishing and all that. I mean, is that altering the landscape, especially for your students? I mean, do you throw that out there to them saying, hey, you have an outlet if the conventional companies turn you down, you can still self-publish do you throw that out there when you talk to your students? Yeah, I certainly do because I'm thinking the same thing because it's because uh, I think what you're just trying to do is find the best home, you know, for your baby, so to speak. And yeah. I think you're absolutely right, Matthew. Self-publishing or even hybrid publishing, which seems to be this kind of conglomeration, you know, where you can go to a publishing outfit, but hey, maybe you're up to speed on, you know, you know, getting the word out media-wise, but you need some help on deciding typefaces or whatever. I think it's very exciting because I think it used to be, I, I can think how frustrated I was for those three years trying to get Castro's curveball out. And granted, that was 20-some years ago, so the market was quite a bit different, but I kind of wish there was more you know, ways to do it back then as there is now. Because I think, again, if you have something you really believe in, there's many different ways you can get it out. And it's just kind of up to you, kind of trusting your intuition more than anything, going, okay, that's that's the direction we should go. And I'm big in Mars. I've got several writing friends who have done conventional, but now they're doing self-publishing. You know, it's it's wide open. And I think it's a lot more fun for writers. Yeah, I mean, uh, a friend of mine, Sal Marciano, the dean of Buffalo Sports Writers, he, he's just self-published a thing. So when you're seeing big names like him self-publishing, mm -hmm. I think that's like a grinding of legitimacy to the self-publishing industry. Tim, last question. What will be your next book project, and when can we expect its release? <laughs> you sound like my agent now. Um, let's see. I'm working on one. That's a little bit of departure. It's, um, it's set in the last a few months of um, our last half year of the Civil War, mm. but it's up on the Canadian-U.S. border near Niagara Falls where I grew up. Mm. What people don't realize is that part of the world was chock full of Confederate spies and all these type of intrigue that almost brought some, well, especially Britain and some of the other uh, European countries into the war. and. Uh, and so that's what I'm working on right now. In fact, I was just up in Niagara Falls uh, two weeks ago. They've got some amazing museums up there. You know, just the backstory. I've always loved the falls because it's, um, you know, it's beautiful, but it's also kind of terrifying. So I'm working away on that. When it's going to be released, I don't know. I hope, I hope next year, but I've got to do a smidge more work on it. But um I'm excited. I'm excited about it. And maybe that's the key, I think, to any writing is um, when you get so excited about it, you know, thankfully I've got my wife and family and some friends. When I get really wound up about a story, sometimes they'll just kind of say, you know, Tim, it's time for you to shut up and time for you to get writing that book. And, <laughs> and that's what I'm doing right now. Well, when it comes out, Tim, please let me know. I would love to have you on my show again. In fact, you're always welcome. Forever, you know, every time you put out a new book, you're always welcome to be on the show. And tell your students if they publish anything, they're welcome on my show too. Okay. Oh, that's awesome. That's a, that's a great invite. Thank you, Matthew. You're very welcome, Tim. You take care. Please be safe, and I can't wait to have you on the show again. 
All right. You have a great evening. Thanks yeah. to all your listeners. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, for next week's show where I will be interviewing sports author Jack Bales. Thank you and good night.